culture to politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to consider a, a great act of courage and insight uh, and constructive criticism about a mistake our society has been making for, oh, more than 50 years right now. What is the mistake? The so-called sexual revolution. A book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It is by a uh, young woman who's 30 years old. So she is a daughter of the sexual revolution. Her name is Louise Perry. Uh, she is a, uh, uh, a rising journalist and uh, campaigner, it says, in uh, Great Britain. And she joins us on the line from uh, London. Is that right, Louise? Right. Um, yes, good evening from London. Yes, well, good evening to you, and congratulations on the book. Uh, the book is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. The author is Louise Perry. And uh, I, let me ask you first off, I, I'm, I was just looking at a review, and a very positive review, from a very left-wing publication, The Guardian, over in UK, and they describe your book as a potent, plain-speaking manifesto. Uh, <laughs> so congratulations on that. What has surprised you most so far about the reaction to your book? Uh, how positive it has been. <laughs> as you say, I, I got um, a very nice review um, in The Guardian Observer, and um, I've had very nice reviews from uh, conservatives, from Christians, from atheists, um, really across the political spectrum. Uh, criticism as well, as I was expecting. But, you know, when I was writing this book, I thought um, this is going to be really controversial. You know, this is going to bring trouble down on my head. And you know what? I mean, maybe I'm... Speaking prematurely here, but so far, <laughs> uh, I'm getting away with it. Has anyone challenged your basic premise? And as far as I can gather, the basic premise is, uh, I'll read back to you from part of a, uh, a, a piece that you posted summarizing the arguments in your book. The research is clear. Men are, on average, far more interested than women are in casual sex, buying sex, watching porn, and experimenting with unusual fetishes. It's not that women never enjoy such things, but on average they enjoy them much less than men do. Has anyone challenged you on that assumption? Um, yes, yeah, so the, the, the criticism that I get sometimes of, of that um, that view, which is very much rooted in peer-reviewed data, you know, this book is crammed full of numbers and citations and whatever, because I, I thought that was important to make it clear that this is this is based on, um, it's based on intuition, and I don't think anyone listening will be surprised to hear that, that you know, that, that data exists showing a difference in male and female sexuality, but it is also based on real research. Um, the criticism that I get sometimes is that, um, you know, yes, these differences exist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're caused by anything 
innately biological, you know, because I argue in the book that um, our evolutionary history can explain these differences very, very well. Um, but some people say, no, this is just to do with the fact that we live in a culture that encourages men to behave in some ways and women to behave in other ways, um, which clearly is partly true. I think, though, that the, the problem with that argument is it doesn't account for the fact that these differences are cross-cultural. You know, you can look across... Um, any given um, country outside of the West or any historical period that we have good data on, and you'll find that same pattern um, in terms of the difference between male and female sexuality. And I think, is it really plausible that that is every single time been a consequence of culture and the way we raise children and so on? To me, it sounds like flipping a coin a thousand times and it coming up heads every time, you know. I think it's just a lot more likely that what we're dealing with is a biological difference. And the argument that I want to make in the book is I don't think that feminists should be afraid of that biological difference. I don't think that we should kind of put all our energies into denying it. I think we should say, okay, the difference exists. What kind of sexual culture, what kind of legal system would be best suited to reducing the harm that comes from that comes from our, you know, our natures as men and women and as human beings? Uh, other than the the message that uh, uh, tries to obliterate any differences or distinctions between males and females, uh, particularly in the sexual arena, uh, other than than uh, that basic uh, lie, as you call it in your book, the case against the sexual revolution, what's been the most damaging factor of that revolution? For women today? So I think that the basic problem that we've got is we've got this difference between uh, male and female sexuality, particularly on something like casual sex, right? So, so men are just, uh, on average, crucially on average, there are outliers, a lot more interested in casual sex. They want to have more partners. They want to jump into bed more quickly with new people um, than women do. And this is combined with the fact that women also suffer all sorts of um, risks and 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 um, and burdens from sex that men don't face. You know, we're the ones who get pregnant, whether we want to or or not. Um, we are the ones who have to take hormonal birth control, which of course started this whole. I mean, my argument is really started the whole sexual revolution to begin with. The advent of hormonal birth control, um, which is designed obviously for women to take, which means that women also suffer all the side effects and so on. And also because women are smaller and weaker than men are physically, women are at risk from violence in any you know in any heterosexual encounter with a man and a woman alone together. The woman is always going to be physically at a, at a disadvantage. And I think the problem with, um, you know, given that asymmetry, given the fact that the playing field is not an even one, um, I think that a culture of casual sex, which says that um, casual sex is not just an option for women, but is actually obligatory. I mean, that if you if you speak to um, to young women, as I have in the writing of this book, who've grown up in this culture, um, I'm 30, so I'm kind of at the upper end of it, but... but um, students now at university and at school and so on it, it doesn't feel to them as though this is just an option among many you know you could choose to um wait till marriage you could choose not to the feeling is that the culture actually mandates it it says that um it's embarrassing to be a virgin even as a teenager you know that um if you're not hooking up at school or, or at college it's because you're a prude 
it, it very much feels as if this is this is this is the normal thing to do and we know that teenagers in particular are obsessed with being normal right that's such an important priority for you at that age when you're really really concerned with social status and i think what's happened post-sexual revolution is that we've kind of flipped the culture so it used to be in the 1950s and earlier that there was there was a sexual double standard right women were expected to be uh, to be chased, were, were terribly judged if they were viewed as promiscuous in any way, in a way that men didn't. You know, there was a real um, unfairness there, there still is. But I think what's happened in a way is that whereas women used to be expected to be um, chased, now they're expected to be to be up for it, you know, to be to be sexually adventurous, to be sexually available, to put out on a first date. And, oh. and the thing that worries girls now is not so much being called a slut, but being called a prude. Okay, we, we are going to get back to Louise Perry. Her book is called The a Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she has fascinating list of pieces of advice that she would offer her own daughter, including uh, only have sex with a man if you think he would make a good father. What a concept. Uh, we will get to that controversial concept, shouldn't be, uh, with Louise Perry coming up on the Medved Show. Washington Policy Center, WPC, is Washington State's champion for free market reforms and is nationally renowned for its effectiveness. Michael Medved show uh, the book by Louise Perry it is just out it is already a bestseller it is uh, going to be a book that generates a great deal of discussion and impact the title is the case against the sexual revolution and Louise begins with a premise which I think is accurate which is that everybody has been heralding the sexual revolution as a great moment of, of liberation, a new possibility. And uh, what she writes is that it has actually shackled an entire generation. And some of what she offers in the book is advice that she would offer her own uh, daughter. Uh, first of all, do you mind my asking, Louise, do you have a daughter? No, I have I only have a son so far. I oh, hope they'll have okay. one day. <laughs> okay, well, we'll have to talk about advice you would offer him uh, because yeah. part of part of reading uh, your book, The Case Against Sexual Revolution, uh, indicates uh, that men have to get hold of themselves and uh, stop glorying in some of the... Uh, behavior that you would consider reprehensible but you have a point here when you talk about advice for a daughter only have sex with a man if you think he would make a good father to your children and you say not because you necessarily intend to have children with that man but because this is a good rule of thumb in deciding whether he's worthy of your trust yeah uh, explain because this is profoundly important Part of the reason I came up with that rule is I think that um, so we, we we spoke just earlier about some of the ways in which men and women are different on average, right? And and, and differences in sexuality are the most glaring to my mind and, and the center of my whole book's premise. But there are other differences too in terms of personality and behavior and so on. And and one of them, which is very well documented, is that women tend to be more 
um, what psychologists call agreeable than men um, on average. We, in layman's terms, we'd normally say that women tend to be more sort of nice and self-sacrificing and tend to put people... Basically, you know, it's our kind of maternal instincts coming out, that women do tend to be more caring than men are on average. Not always, obviously, but on average. And I think that one of the ways that that plays out often um, in relationships between the sexes is that women... It's, it's amazingly easy, particularly for young women, to persuade them to not put their interests first and to not be assertive and to put up with all kinds of nonsense from, from men. I mean, the, the, the problem, I think, is that our current culture really does encourage sometimes the sort of men's worst sides to be expressed. You know, the, re, the, the casual, the anonymous, the disposable, um, this really quite like brutal attitude towards um, sexual relationships. And um, women, young women in particular, um, are putting up with this. And it's, it's, it kind of amazes me. And, and part of what I'm trying to, um, to do with this book is for young female readers, even though my readers so far have, have come from every possible demographic you can imagine, but for young women in particular is to, is to inspire some confidence and some, that feeling of actually, no, I don't actually have to put up with, um, you know, feeling disposable, disrespected and so on. Um, and I thought that trying to assess a potential boyfriend based on, you know, is he going to treat me right? Is he going to respect me and whatever? This clearly isn't working out for a lot of women. They're not, they're not actually sort of putting their own interests front and centre at the moment when they should be. But I think that we do tend to, um, as women, as mothers, we do tend to be good at, at looking out for our children and sometimes, you know, fiercely, fiercely protecting the interests of our children. And so what I was trying to encourage with that particular piece of advice was to try and kind of get into that mentality of thinking, okay, maybe I can't quite sort of stand up for myself, but can I stand up for people I love? Yes, I think so, you know. <laughs> so that was kind of what I was, uh, the, the, the psychological um, state I was trying to get readers into with that particular piece of advice. One of your other pieces of advice that you would uh, offer to a future daughter, uh, if you're blessed with that, is uh, don't use dating apps. Uh, mm. Now, this is a multi-billion dollar industry, right? So yeah. what's uh, the problem with dating apps? I'm also thinking, particularly, there are some dating apps that are religious in nature, that are based uh, on, on people with shared religious values. Would you make an exception there, or you think dating apps in general are a problem? Yeah, so I might make an exception for um, religious days. I mean, the advantage that dating apps give, and this obviously would apply to religious ones as well, is they do give you access to a, a large pool of options, right? I mean, if you're in a city like London, you've got thousands, tens of thousands of singles um, within a, a small radius of, of you, and, and having that, you know, access to that many potential partners is clearly um, amazing and, and, and all with so much convenience and so on. Um, the problem is, I mean, there are several problems, but the, the one that I think is most pressing is that I think dating apps encourage a kind of um, quite quite savage, quite anonymous um, way of, of people relating to one another, which is very, very based on superficial um, photos, the briefest of descriptions. Um, what what of, often seems to happen on these apps as well is that they, um, even if they're not originally designed as hookup apps, they kind of degenerate over time to become hookup apps. We've just 
um, celebrated, if that's the right word, 10 years of Tinder, um, which has now become very much associated with with, with a casual sex culture and, and new apps keep coming along which market themselves as being no 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 this one really is about serious relationships this one really is about you know uh seeking mr right and they all end up being like tinder in the end um and i think this is partly to do with the fact that the men who do really really well on dating apps and get lots and lots of matches are a really small minority of men it's really the only the top, um, I think the figure on Tinder is that the top 10% of men in terms of attractiveness get 60% of the attention from women. Um, this is to do with the fact that women do do tend to unconsciously kind of aspire to, to match up with men who are, um, who are high status in all sorts of ways. And what ends up happening, therefore, is that if you're lucky enough to be one of these men who gets loads and loads of matches, you've got the pick of the bunch. Um, most men aren't getting any matches at all. They're, they're kind of left miserably lonesome on dating apps. Yeah, they the become re- incel and serial killers, unfortunately. It's <laughs> sense. Well, Speaking of serial not- killers, well, one, one other point before we run out of time that I wanted to get to is you say chivalry is actually a good thing. Uh, define chivalry. Um, I think that chivalry is basically, stri- you know, stripped down all the other the kind of cultural accessories, is, is basically the recognition that men are at a physical disadvantage over women in all, you know, in all sorts of ways, but particularly in terms of size and strength. And I, and I think the principle is basically that with, with that kind of power comes responsibility. Um, you can't expect us all to behave in exactly the same way, um, given the fact that we are different in some really profound dimensions. And I think that a culture of chivalry basically tells men that actually they have um, a responsibility to use their power well and with kindness and 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 to treat um, women with dignity and respect and so on. Hey, hey, amen to that. A little yeah. bit of a word for self-control. And uh, self-control is certainly a value advanced by Louise Perry. Uh, she is a writer uh, based in London, UK. She's the author of the very provocative and very successful new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. G'day, I'm Jamil. On the Michael Medved show, uh, there is a, a piece which I initially thought uh, was a uh, piece with tongue-in-cheek because it's... Uh, so much uh, going <laughs> against the current uh, political discussion, particularly in, in one of the finest uh, journals, it seems to me, of opinion there is, which is National Review. And the piece is by Charles C.W. Cook, and the title, the headline is Save Our Political System, Impeach and Convict Joe Biden. Now, this is... Uh, not to associate Charles C.W. Cook in any way with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has already committed herself to introduce articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. And it seems to me that if I can make out what uh, Mr. Cook is doing here, is he's actually making a very important point and trying to get our attention by talk of impeachment. The, the chances even if the Republicans take over the House of Representatives, the chances of getting through articles of impeachment 
on uh, Joe Biden because he has authorized the forgiveness of student loans, which is what uh, Cook is talking about, the chances are nil. It, it won't happen. And one of the arguments I made against the impeachment of Donald Trump was it was very obvious what would happen is that there would be an impeachment which was voted by the House of Representatives where you only need a majority. And uh, but then it would go to the Senate where you need two thirds of the votes. You need 67 senators to uh, vote for uh, removal from office. And that's virtually impossible. I mean, given the fact that there will be at least one third of the senators in the Senate who are from the president's own party who will vote against impeachment until Mitt Romney uh, in President Trump's first impeachment, he became the first uh, candidate with a president's own party voting to remove the president from office. And and then there were seven other U.S. senators who were, but that's seven. And the, especially with the Senate split the way it is, they would have needed 17 or more uh, because given the fact that uh, the, the, the Senate, uh, before the new senators were uh, elected, uh, before the impeachment process was over, um, in fact, the uh, Senate was 52 to 48, and then it was split in its 50-50 shape. But uh, look, this is not to share with you any suspicion that Joe Biden will be impeached or removed from office. He won't. Uh, but I, I do think that Cook is right about the con unconstitutional nature of what Biden has done here. He writes, evidently Biden feels as if there are no consequences to violating his oath of office. Last August, Biden double, triple, quadruple checked whether he was allowed to order another moratorium on evictions without Congress, and he concluded that he was not. Then he did it anyway, on the outrageous grounds that the, the time it would take to litigate might allow him to keep this going for a month at least, I hope longer. Last Wednesday, Biden pulled the same trick with student loans, that the president does not have the statutory power to cancel college loans. has long been so obvious that even Nancy Pelosi has managed to acknowledge it. The president can't do it, writes Cook. That's not even a discussion. And that's actually a quote from Nancy Pelosi. That's what she said last year. People think the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. But he does not, Nancy confirmed. A week ago, Biden did it anyway, with the help of what might be the single most cynical and embarrassing legal memorandum in modern American history. And why wouldn't he, given that presidents have started to get away with such behavior as a matter of routine? In 2012, President Obama told audience after audience that he couldn't suspend deportations through executive order because there are laws on the books that Congress has passed. Those laws on the books by Congress, Obama said, more than 20 times are very clear in terms of how we have to enforce our immigration system. I'm not a king, Obama said. I'm not the emperor of the United States, he noted. There is a path to get this done, and that is through Congress, he insisted. Then he did it anyway, on his own. And nothing happened. In 2019... 
Writes C.W. Cook, Donald Trump followed suit, exasperated by his repeated inability to convince the Democratic Congress to appropriate funds for his border wall. Trump announced that he had discovered some emergency laws on the books that, conveniently enough, allowed him to go it alone. Trump, Trump then took $6.5 billion from the Treasury. And... Uh, President Biden, of course, with the forgiveness of the loans, has taken much more. It's over $300 billion. There's not a single person in America, writes C.W. Cook, who believes that what President Biden has done is legal. And that includes the people who penned the contrived legal justifications for him. His order is a ruse, a scheme, a hijacking. The product not of genuine ambiguity in the law, but of a preference for brute force. I know it. You know it. We all know it. President Biden knows it. That is why, in almost taunting tones, the president's apologists have begun to remind the dissenters that under the current standing rules, there may be no person in America who can sue. Well, they ask gleefully, what you going to do about it? I'll tell you what I would do about it, writes C.W. Cook. I'd impeach and convict the president and end this trend for good. In this country, Congress makes the laws. In this country, Congress appropriates the funds. In this country, Congress sets immigration policy. In this country, as Barack Obama liked to remind us, the president is not a dictator or an emperor or a king. In this country, there is a path to getting things done, and that path is only through Congress. And if the president doesn't like it, then the president can go home. Among the many scars that Woodrow Wilson left on the American system of government, we can count the notion that the three branches of government are co-equal. They are not. This is very important and good for him. Congress is prime. Congress can pass laws without the president. The president cannot pass laws without Congress. Then you say, what about a veto? You can override a veto. If you get two-thirds or more of the votes on both houses of Congress, boom, forget the veto. Congress can pass a law without the president. president cannot pass laws without Congress. Congress can remove the president. Yes, it's called impeachment and conviction and removal from office. never happened, but they got Nixon to resign. Congress uh, can remove the president. The president cannot remove Congress. Along with the states, Congress can amend the Constitution. The president cannot Look at any part of the American order and you'll find that Congress has the power either to veto the other branches or to change the status quo via other means. Uh, last January, Congress should have used this power to impeach and convict President Trump. And uh, a decade ago, Congress should have used this power to impeach Barack Obama. And today, Congress should use this power to remove Joe Biden from office for repeatedly breaking his oath in the most transparent way imaginable. Now, if the Democrats uh, uh, or if the Republicans try to go with this argument as a part of a platform for uh, their congressional races coming up this November, it's not going to work because, again, I believe that the two Trump impeachments have left uh, Americans, and justifiably so, very, very wary of the impeachment process. It generally does not work. But in terms of making a case that people ought to take seriously and ought to use to challenge uh, Joe Biden politically, if not legally, 
Well, good for him because I think he's right. Unless you think you can figure out a power that the president should have to forgive other people's loans. We will be right back on The Medved Show. Summertime, and a lot of Americans get more active. And when you get more active, sometimes that causes some aches and pain. Neck, shoulder, hip, knee. I mean, I... Michael Medved show. Uh, obviously, the problem of homelessness is uh, a <laughs> a problem that you're not going to hear a lot about uh, on the campaign trail. You should actually, but uh, particularly in cities where it is especially acute and where there's been a very very difficult job in trying to improve things in in any way. Uh, there is a, a piece in the Daily Mail, and the, the Daily Mail, by the way, the um, Louise Parker, who we uh, just had on, on the air, uh, talking about her book on the sexual revolution, one of the publications in Britain she writes for is the Daily Mail. But uh, they just did a huge pictorial about the homeless problem in San Francisco, and uh, San Francisco, as a city, it has a population of 870,000. And uh, there are at least uh, 8,000 people who are homeless and living on the streets. The, uh, they just did a huge pictorial with images showing the city streets crowded with tents as figures show 8,000 are homeless which is 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 truly stunning when you think about it because that's not a, a ridiculously small percentage of the city's population 8000 out of 800000 that's uh it's it's close to because it's 870000 as the population of the city of San Francisco is close to 1 out of 100 and if you're dealing with 1 out of 100 people uh, they say in the Daily Mail, the shocking images bring into stark focus the homelessness problems facing the progressive city. Rows of tents pictured lined up outside businesses with people's belongings strewn across the sidewalk. A homelessness in San Francisco is higher now than at any other time, bar 2019, according to the official count in February. It comes as the Castro Street Merchants Association threatened to stop paying city taxes due to the loss of trade. In other words, they're supposed to be paying taxes to the city of San Francisco, and what they're saying is that if you can't do something to get the homeless uh, multitudes from uh, off our street and from out in front of our stores, we're, we're <laughs> not going to pay taxes. There's also new data that claims that in San Francisco, uh, the, the Castro Merchants Association, which represents 125 businesses, sent a letter to city officials 
outlining three demands, 35 shelter beds for mentally ill and substance-abusing individuals who have taken up residence in the Castro, monthly metrics on services offered to the homeless in the Castro, and a devised plan following a homeless person's refusal of services, which, of course, is, is one of those problems that you have all across the country where you have homeless problems, and we do very much in the city of Seattle. Uh, there is new data that uh, says that at some point uh, there will be 20,000 people who will be homeless in San Francisco this year, but that includes the people who are living in shelters or living in some kind of housing. I believe the number 8,000 is more accurate for the people actually living on the street. But the, the entire thing is, is crazy and horrible. And the fact that government can't seem to do anything about it, the uh, Castro Merchants Association, as the Daily Mail report says, the group said it is sick of homeless living outside their entrances, threatening customers and vandalizing stores. And uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who of course has presidential possibilities, recently vetoed a bill that would have allowed cities to open supervised drug injection sites which help addicts to access regulated substances and attend rehabilitation. Now, is there any evidence at all that setting up uh, drug injection sites actually helps homeless people? Or does it just encourage people with their addiction problems to continue living on the streets when they can wander in to uh, go ahead and, and, and shoot up under medical supervision. I mean, the entire inability to come to grips with this situation is stunning. Uh, there's also a problem here in Seattle. I mean, obviously, there's a many, many problems, but uh, the the mayor of Seattle, who I believe has tried much more than his predecessors, uh, his certainly immediate two predecessors, Mayor, uh, uh, well, three predecessors, Mayor McGinn, Mayor Murray, and uh, Mayor Durkin, Bruce Harrell, the current mayor, has tried at least, and he has supervised and authorized some clearance of homeless encampments. But uh, he said behind closed doors that he felt that the regional homelessness authority was working against him. And uh, then at a press event, he confirmed this morning uh, something that I think is appropriate, that he's going to seek to reduce funding to the entity because the regional homelessness authority has done almost nothing to actually reduce the impact or the prevalence of homelessness. This is the mayor. Listen. You mentioned that uh, the King County Homelessness Authority is working against your interests. Are you going to be proposing in a couple weeks uh, a budget reduction for them? Yes. And again, I'm sure everyone knows, but it's, it bears repeating that um, people are asking about my remarks and my attitude toward the Regional Homelessness Authority. So you will see, I don't, uh, we'll present our budget in a few weeks, but you will see our clear recognition of a lot of the great work they are doing. And that is why I was very intentional in my remarks to talk about Woodland Park Zoo, uh, the Woodland Park, the work they were doing. But let me say this, that is one tool of many. Lead is one tool of many. Our 
social workers and mental health counselors and our police officers are one tool of many. Community passageways is one tool of many. And you put all those tools together and I'm still not happy with what I'm seeing. And you do not want a mayor that's complacent. You, you do not want a mayor that's satisfied with too little in this city. That Crow even agree, agrees with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, the Crows, they, you know, they live in the parks too, and they don't leave quite as much garbage around, and certainly they don't you leave the needles around for people to step on. Uh, there's another problem in America, and this is uh, uh, actually from Fox News, and uh, the headline, More Americans Smoke Marijuana Than Cigarettes, Poll Fines. Now, look, smoking tobacco is so awful, and it really is destructive for society and destructive for people's health. You could say, well, that's good news, except for the fact that there are so many problems associated with smoking marijuana. A majority of people say they smoke marijuana more than cigarettes based on data from a new Gallup poll. Here is a theory, uh, and, and again, it is not a proven theory, but I think it is one that has a real basis. The, uh, th this data that they are gathering is not based on any scientific sampling or any medical testing. It's based on self-reporting. And... Um, in 2019, Gallup conducted a poll that found 83% of people believe that smoking cigarettes is uh, a very harmful. And another 14% responded that it's somewhat harmful. In other words, 97% of people know that smoking cigarettes is terrible for you. So I believe that uh, when someone is asked, do you smoke cigarettes? they are very likely to say no, even if the answer is yes. According to these numbers, the, um, uh, there are uh, a record low of 11% of adults who report smoking cigarettes, with approximately 3 in 10 non-smokers stating they used to smoke a steep drop in cigarette use compared to 45% in the 1950s. Uh, I, there has clearly been a drop in cigarette use. But I know from the number of cigarette butts I pick up on Litter Patrol, it's, uh, it's probably higher than these figures indicate. And they indicate that uh, there are some 16% of people, uh, rather than the 10%, who, um, uh, or 11%, pardon me, who uh, say they smoke marijuana. Less social stigma against smoking marijuana than against smoking cigarettes? Maybe. Is that appropriate? Maybe not. In this greatest nation on God's green earth.